to the very beginning of your Bibles. And I don't mean the table of contents. Genesis chapter 1. We will be spending time this summer in Genesis chapters 1 to 3. Trust the Lord is going to use the time to uh, minister to us and build us up and magnify His name. And so, with that expectation, let's let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your Word, and Lord, we just thank you for who you are and how you reveal yourself to us through your Word. And Lord, it's just not any old words but they are Your words, Your very words. And Lord, in them and through them, uh, there's life. And we thank You for it. And so Lord, we ask You to, to come and do once again the miraculous in our midst. To breathe through the preaching and teaching of Your Word. The speaking of Your Word. The reading of Your Word. Using the gift of preaching. And Lord, that You, through these things, would speak to us and speak life. And Lord, that You would change us and You would magnify Your name. We thank You, Lord, that we can be here before Your Word. Thank You for the blessing of it, Lord. May we hunger after Your Word. May we love Your Word. And Lord, we ask You just to come and be with us and to use this time. We thank You, Lord. We love You. And so, Lord, use this time. I am weak. But Lord, You're strong. And you're the one who has called your people to yourself and gathered your people and given gifts and given leaders. So, Lord, we trust you to use this time to be magnified in it. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning we have a very short section of Genesis to read. We're actually going to read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis 1, verse 1. And I know what you're thinking right now is that if he goes at this pace with 50 chapters and roughly 30 verses per chapter, that's 50 years in Genesis if he does the whole book. And that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing at all, but that's not the plan. This morning we will focus on this particular verse. So let me read that verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, chapter 1. Well, that's the first verse in this book, and I'm excited for us to journey through this book. We're going to dig into that verse some more in a little bit, but I wanted to spend a little time doing a little bit of background on Genesis and what we're doing, why we're doing it. The, the series for this summer in Genesis I've entitled The Beginning of It All. And that's what the word Genesis actually means. It means beginning. It's a, the beginning of it all, really. And it's so important for us to receive the blessing of this book and the truths in this book. We lived in a, in a crazy, mixed-up world. And there are a lot of ideas out there, a lot of voices. You know, 
probably in this point in history, there probably are more voices clamoring for our attention than ever before. We live in the information age. We have the internet. We have all sorts of media. So you hear all sorts of stuff. You get spam emails all the time. People trying to sell something, trying to promote something. Most of it unworthy. We live in this world with many voices around us promoting many different things. Genesis is given to us to give us a voice, the voice, to guide us to this world. You see, we need to have our worldview formed by the Word of God. We need to have our worldview formed by the Word of God. Recently I had a conversation with a relative of mine, and it was a good conversation, and she was making the point that we shouldn't mix religion and politics. She just kind of said that. She said, you know, it's kind of the basis of our country, is it not, this not mixing the two? And, and I actually said, yes, I agree with that in concept. I agree that we shouldn't use religion for political gain and we shouldn't use politics for selfish religious gain. That's very true. But I said it's impossible to divide the two because really the word religion stands for your belief system or your worldview. And there's just no way not to have a worldview. We all have worldviews. And in regards to politics, there's just no way to separate your worldview from your politics. Um, they are directly connected. And so I just made an appeal that, that there's just no way to do that. And so maybe it's about doing it wisely. Maybe isn't that the issue, doing, mixing those two wisely. So we all have a worldview. The whole world has a worldview. And there are all these different worldviews are clamoring for our attention. And Genesis was really written for just such an occasion as the one we're in. Because the people of God were being brought out of Egypt at this time and being brought into the Promised Land. And they had just come out of a society that had a very solid pagan worldview. And this worldview was there, I'm sure it was influencing them. And they were moving into a place where they were at the crossroads of many powerful civilizations with many different ideas, many different worldviews. The Canaanites who were there, the Hittites, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, later the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans were all there with their different worldviews. And they would all be crossing through Israel and influencing Israel in some way. So, as they prepared to enter the Promised Land, God gave them the first five books of the Bible. God gave them the first one, the book of Genesis, so that their worldview would be anchored in the revelation and truth of God. So what works for them works for us too. God has given us the book of Genesis, not only that they would be anchored in the truth and it would have all of its ramifications for them, but that we would be anchored in the truth. And the, the truths of Genesis we need to hear we need them to work through our lives. We need them to establish us in truth. And that, I trust, is what the Lord's going to do. What's amazing is in the book of Genesis and in the first three chapters of Genesis, God brings out themes that run throughout the whole Bible. So the content of these three chapters gets into themes that, that follow the whole book. And in some ways, if you want to know what the whole book is about, instead of reading the end, you can actually just read the beginning and see things such as the nature of God. That's right there in Genesis chapter 1. The power of God. 
the purpose of the universe, the purpose of creation, the purpose of mankind, mankind's present state, having fallen from his original state into sin. And even in the first three chapters are whispers of the redemption to come from sin for mankind. And those themes run throughout the whole Bible. Those are the key themes, really, in the entire Bible. Right there, the first three chapters of Genesis. And I want us as a people of God to understand these truths in the Old Testament. One thing I think that you could say about the modern Western church is that we are Old Testament illiterate. And I think because of that, we are robbed of the depth and the riches of the New Testament. And we can learn things and do things in the New Testament and just not appreciate the depth and the history and how God has been working these things from the beginning of time. And we get to experience the the culmination of it all. So part of my motivation to get us into Genesis was so that we would be richer for it. And when we move on to the next series, perhaps in the New Testament, we will have a better and broader understanding of the truths that are there in the New Testament. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1. Let us look at verse 1. And as I read, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Matthew Henry says about this verse, this first verse of the Bible gives us a sure and better, a more satisfying and useful knowledge of the origin of the universe than all the volumes of the philosophers. The lively faith of humble Christian understands this. This first verse. This first verse in Genesis contains truth that is more satisfying and useful, more effective for us than all the other philosophers, all the other teachings that might be out there. One verse. The first verse of the Bible. There's just so much truth packed in that. That's why I just wanted to to hit on this one verse to start with. And if you just look at it, you can start to kind of glean what's there. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If we back up and shorten it a little bit, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. That statement right there is huge. We, we can miss it if we, if we don't think about it. But if I begin to contrast views of the world that are out there besides this view, I think you'll begin to appreciate the importance of that phrase, in the beginning, God. There are lots of views out there right now. And they teach things besides that there's a beginning. And certainly they don't teach that there's a God. There are current views out there that there's, there were, was no beginning. That things have just always been. One of the current theories in, in astrophysics, and it ties into evolution. And I think it's, it comes from the realization that if you want to rely on evolution and the statistics of evolution, it's really ridiculous that it would ever happen. The statistics are bigger than all the universe in all time. And, and that's, that's actually mathematically verifiable. I think it's 1 times 10 to the 219,000. 100,000. So, so that's, that's how big the statistics are, which means it's impossible. So, what the, one of the theories is that the universe actually has been going through cycles of expansion and contraction. Expansion and contraction, just forever. And finally, they got, it, it got it right once, and boom, we had uh, a solar system and the Earth at the, just the right distance from the sun and just the right conditions for evolution and mankind and everything. Finally, we got it right. That's one of the theories. So it says there was no beginning and certainly there was no God. In contrast to that, 
Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Which one's more believable? I think this one is much more believable. Some will say that it really doesn't matter what the beginning was, and this one's a little complicated. You'll hear it at times. It's called the anthropic principle. It basically says the fact is we are here. And so whether or not how we got here just doesn't matter. It's a moot point because we have to be here because we are here. So it doesn't matter how we got here. In other words, if it's statistically impossible, it just doesn't matter. The fact is we are here. It happened. That's called the anthropic principle. And basically it's nonsensical. It's circular logic, but it's popular. It just says, yeah, we just are. We're just here. And it fits so tightly in with humanism and its statements that basically all I know really is that I am here. That's all I know. I know I think. I am experiencing something right now. I'm looking at a bunch of people sitting down and and I'm experiencing. I know I exist because I'm having an experience right now. And hopefully it's a good one. That's that's basically the uh, existentialism. That you know you exist because you think, and so life is just a matter of whether you have pain or pleasure, and you should pursue pleasure, because pleasure feels better than pain. And then there's a question, well, what is pleasure and pain? That's all self-referred. It's all based on what you think is pleasure and pain. And where you go with that is just total meaninglessness. That's our society. These are the philosophies in our society. Whether or not the guy on the street whom you talk to states it that way, that's what's there. That's what's driving our society. That's what's driving our culture. Not entirely, but largely. Humanism, relativism. All you really know is what you know. And who is anybody else to tell you differently? They have no rights. It's relativism. And that philosophy came out of, well, it actually goes back to the Greeks, but it became popular again in in the medieval ages, late medieval ages. And the first guys to really... uh, promote it were Christian, nominal Christian humanists. But what happened is it's a humanistic, it's a man-centered philosophy. And if you take that thought of man-centeredness and, and take it to its logical conclusions, you end up at Hitler and Stalin. You end up at Roe v. Wade. You end up at our culture right now, where there's no more absolutes. There's only some, some effort to find some common ground. Thus, tolerance becomes the highest virtue. That's our society. And our society is influenced by that to some degree or another. In contrast to that, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Before there was anything, before there was any man to think anything, there was God. And there was a beginning. There was a start of creation. And God was present at the start of creation. In the beginning, God. He was already there at the beginning before things started. And we know from that statement and we know from all the Scripture, we know from Hebrews 11, for instance, that He created out of nothing. It says that in Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand that God created out of everything by words so that what is visible was not made from what is visible, but from the invisible, from God basically. Creation out of nothing. God is the one who made all things. He created. And He existed before creation. In the beginning, God. So, history has a direction. It has a starting point. And it has a personal God behind it. History is just not circumstances happening. There's a God who was there in the beginning 
creating all things. And, and we see later on how He does it and what He makes and so forth. We'll get more into that. But just wanted to spend this morning in the big picture that there is a personal God behind everything. And so there's some truths that follow from that that are key. There's the philosophy that summed up, that basically relativism and humanism summed up, I think, therefore I am. There's a Latin phrase that goes with that. I think, therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum. So it means I think, therefore I am. Uh, I think, therefore I am. That's, that's the philosophy. Well, Genesis 1.1 just totally undoes that. It doesn't say, I think, therefore I am. It says, the I am exists, therefore I think. The I am exists, therefore I think. And just turns it totally upside down. Pascal, Blaise Pascal, uh, a believer, a Catholic believer in the 1600s, said, I believe so that I might understand. He said it in Latin, but that doesn't matter. I believe so that I might understand. He just turned that statement differently around. I believe in order to understand. If there is no God, and if I don't believe God, there's no truth. There's no knowing anything except that you exist and you have some sort of experience. So he is saying basically, I've got to assume there is a God or there's just no ability to make sense of anything. Proverbs, I mean, Psalm 14.1 says it a little differently. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We need to know these truths. And we need to be careful, too, as we interact with the culture. We want to engage people. We can talk about these things. But we must realize that it's really ultimately a waste of time to engage them on their presuppositions. Because their presuppositions are all based on what they experience and think. It's all self-referred. And you'll never get anywhere with that, ultimately. It just doesn't... And, and, and what you can do is help them see that that's the reality. That, you know, do you realize what you're arguing on? You're arguing on based on what you think. And how do you know what you think is right? You have no basis. If you want to walk down that, that aisle of thinking, it's bankrupt and empty and nonsensical. The fool says in his heart there is no God. In order to even have a conversation, we must assume there is a Creator who created things orderly, logically, truthfully. And so as we interact with the world, let us not try to beat them on their terms. Let us go back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. And if I don't assume that, there's no reason for us to have a conversation. And from that place, when you understand that, things begin to make sense. Life begins to make sense. The cross begins to make sense. So let us not, in a sense, waste our time with, with man-centered apologetics. Let us assume this truth. In the beginning, God. The I Am exists. Our God reigns. In the beginning, God created, it says. In the beginning, God, in the, in the beginning, God created. He made all things. He got all things started. He created the heavens and the earth. And as I said before, He existed from that before creation. It's amazing. Now, we're just in verse 1 here, and we're hitting on themes that are like life-defining themes. They have huge impact for our lives. Thank you, Cindy. <laughs> so these, these truths in, in, chap, in verse 1 of chapter 1, right off the bat, are already touching on themes about our existence, our whole purpose for being here. See, God has existed before before creation. 
He existed before creation. And if we dig a little deeper into the Scriptures and look, we'll start to uncover some truths that are, that are just very, uh, very fascinating and I think helpful. That it says in Scripture that Jesus in John 17, He says, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. You love me before the foundation of the world, it says in, in verse 5 and verse 24, it says that. So what we learn in Scripture is that God has existed before the world was created. God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, have always existed. And if we dig into our Bibles a little deeper, we'll see and we'll know that God Himself is perfect in all His ways. There's no lack in God. God is not becoming a better God. God is not becoming a more compassionate or wiser God. He wouldn't be God if that were true. He's perfect. He's infinitely good, infinitely perfect, has always existed. And so before time, if you can conceive of that, which we really can't, before time, before creation, He was. He is the I Am. He has always been, even before time. And so that, that doesn't, we can't figure that out. It doesn't make sense. But He has always been. And He's always been perfect. So the question follows, why Genesis 1-1, God? Why Genesis 1-1? I mean, you had no lack. You had perfect fellowship. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Perfect fellowship. Jesus is saying, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the earth was created. You loved me before all these things. Perfect love. Depth. Glory. All that God was, He already was at that point. So why creation? Do you see that? I mean, do you understand? If he's perfect, if he has no lack, if he's always been and, and enjoyed perfect fellowship and, and love, I mean, just love. But imagine the love between the Trinity. I mean, we cannot... Infinite, perfect love shared. Just delighting in one another and in the goodness and glory of God. It's right for God to do that, by the way. It's wrong for us. Why is it wrong for us to do that? Because we're not infinitely good and glorious and worthy. It's, it's only wrong to enjoy and glorify something that is un, unworthy, but it's right to enjoy something that's wor- worthy. So God, Scripture just never paints a picture of God not doing, uh, not glorying in Himself. So it, there's this enjoyment and fellowship among the Trinity. And so why creation? I mean, it, it makes sense. I mean, if, if Peg and I were, were, deci- were des- to decide to move from our present house maybe across town somewhere... A natural question would be is, why are you moving? Right? In a sense, we're moving across town to create a new home. You'd say, why? It must be because there was something wrong with your old home or some, some lack there. You wanted another bedroom or a garage, whatever. It would follow. So it follows. Why, God? Why creation? Why creation? That's a great question. And if we can answer that question, I think it will help us understand our Bibles. Because answering that question and understanding that question at the very first verse of the Bible will help us see the reason for all the other verses. And not only the reason for all the other verses of the Bible, but the reason for life and existence itself. And the reason you're here this morning. And He made you. And what He wants to do in your life and through your life. So if we can answer that question, we answer really the deepest question of reality. Why, God? Why wasn't it just you? The triune God. Why did you make all these things? Well, I will feebly attempt 
to try to answer that from Scripture. Really, it would take a, a study of the, the whole of Scripture, I think, to see that. But we can look at some verses. Ultimately, I'll, I'll, give, you the, I'll give you the answer ahead of time and then hopefully back it up. The reason He created all things, the reason He created the heavens and the earth, is to express His glory. To express who He is. So He had no lack, but in His glory and in His goodness, He had the desire in His infinite goodness, His holiness, His love, His mercy, to express it. And it's so important as we get into this, because I've made this mistake, it's so important that when we hear about the glory of God and about these truths, that we not think that it's some dispassionate, disconnected act that God did. That He just said, hey, you know, I'm kind of bored today, why don't I express my glory, Yeah, you know, and just do this. Because we celebrated communion today. And God showed His glory in His Son. And it was not dispassionate and disconnected. I mean, look at the suffering of God the Son in Gethsemane and on the cross and what He went through. There's no one who has ever and ever will suffer like the Son did. There's no one who ever will and ever has gone through the hell He went through. So the dimensions of His glory are not ever experienced by us, but they are experienced by Him. And it's not dispassionate. It's not disconnected. His glory involves His whole self. And when He wanted to make creation, He knew what was coming. The Son knew what was coming. The Son knew that it would mean mankind would fall and the Father would determine to redeem mankind. And it would cost Him everything. Philippians chapter 2, He emptied Himself of His glory and became a man. A nobody type man. A poor person. He lived a lonely life in many ways, serving others, and then went to the cross to bear the sins of rebels. And there was no one there with him to say, this is a great idea, do it. No one did. They abandoned him. They left him. His best friends abandoned him. And he was forced to face the wrath of God and have God the Father, with whom he had known perfect fellowship forever and ever, cut off the relationship. We don't understand that. It's amazing. So his glory is not just like you know, some distant theoretical thing. It's, it's the expression of all he is in his infinite wisdom, his infinite compassion, his infinite mercy, his infinite justice. All these things. So, so when he said, I wanted to make the heavens and the earth, he wasn't just saying, oh, you know, let's just have some fun here. He knew what it meant. And you know what? We'll never fully know what it meant. We'll never fully grasp the glory of God. He has decided within creation to express His glory in creation and through the events in creation to show His glory. So that's why He did it. Ultimately. God wanted to express His glory. There are a number of verses you can look at. Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. Paul's reflecting on the sovereign, mysterious ways of God. And he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. 
For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory. Creation, time and space and events and everything we know about creation, physical creation, spiritual realm, all these things are from Him, through Him, and to Him, to His glory. And all of that means. And all that that means. That's why He made everything. Creation and the pinnacle of creation being mankind exist for the glory of God. That's why He made everything. I just gave away the meaning of the rest of the book. And I'm only in verse 1. And I know how I don't like that when someone tells me what's going to be in a movie before I see the movie, but I hope that you continue to read it because it's not just theory. You see, God in these truths is not a distant, abstract God who just says, I'm going to create and we're just going to watch a show here. We are part of what He's doing. And He invites us to come and actively, knowingly participate and enjoy Him glorifying Himself in creation. He invites us to behold His glory and understand His purposes. He's a personal God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This God is personal. Creation is personal. And He invites us to come to Him and understand the glory of His Son and understand and receive and experience His salvation. And understand the purpose for our being. And enjoy it. See, that's how His glory works. It's personal. He knows the best thing for us is to come and to behold Him. And enjoy Him. And walk according to that. To respond in holiness. To respond by walking as His people. And walking in His ways. He invites us to that. So it isn't just a story that we watch. It's something we participate in. There's just, there's just so much in this one verse. I hope this is clear. I hope it's serving you. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It teaches us another truth about creation, and that is God has a prerogative in creation. God has a right to do what He wants with creation. He made it. If you make something, it's yours to do what you want with it. God made everything. He made us. We are not our own. He has the prerogative. He is the one who determines what to do. Now, we don't like that, do we, in our natural selves? We don't like to hear that. Matter of fact, we squirm. No! And we accuse God. Hey, that's not fair. Because I know if, if, if that person got to be it, they'd mess up. So how come you get to be that? How come you get to have a right? That's not, that's not fair. And what's behind that is what? We want us to be the ones that determine it. That's the sin of the garden. That's the sin of the devil. It's basically, we want to be God. We want the ones to have the prerogative. We want to determine what goes on. I want to be in control of my circumstances. I want to be the one who determines what sort of house I have and what sort of family I have and what sort of circumstances I enjoy. I want to be the one who determines when it's sunny out, which would be most of the year. I want to be that one. I don't want God to be that one. Who does He think He is? Why am I getting old? I don't want to get old. Why aren't I a great athlete? When I watch baseball, I want to be like one of those guys. Why aren't I one of those guys? That's what we do. Now, we, it may not be as obvious as that, 
but we do it. Or am I the only one? Okay. We, we, yeah. we do that. We want to rob God of that prerogative, because not because we necessarily don't trust God, though that's part of it. It's because we want to be the one. And so we'll use whatever excuses we can make. There's no one better in all of creation. Matter of fact, he's beyond creation. There's no one better to determine what is done and to have that prerogative than God Himself. If it were up to us, we would make a big, big mess of it. We have. That's right. But isn't it wonderful? He says, come to Me through My Son and learn what it is to enjoy Me being Lord of all. The power of the cross, the power of the Gospel allows us to put to death that man that wants to be God and instead humble ourselves and die to that man with Christ and rise again to new life in Him where we enjoy the fact that God reigns and rules. That's wonderful good news. So we may struggle with that. And even if you are a believer, you still will struggle with it for sin still remains. And maybe it's not as obvious as I was talking about earlier, maybe it's more subtle. I know for me it is usually more subtle, just maybe because I have enough street smarts to know that if it were that blatant, I'd be in trouble immediately. So I can be more subtle with it. And I have recently experienced some of this sin. It's interesting because I was wanted to illustrate for my own life, and as I prayed, Lord, would you help me give something that is specific? I didn't think of anything at first, which is kind of sad. It means that I'm not aware of my own sin, which is there. I'm just not aware of it. But then God began to unfold some things, even last night to me, about how I want to be the one who determines how things are done. See, not only is God sovereign in creating, but we see in Scripture He's, not, he's sovereign over all time and space in His creation. Not just that initial event, but throughout everything. In Acts chapter 17, it says, He determines the times and places we all live. Perhaps that we would reach out to Him and find Him, it says in Acts 17. But He determines our parents, our location, everything. And the implication in all the Scripture is He determines everything, ultimately. Now, we are never to use that as an excuse for fatalism. The Scripture never presents it this way, that it means that somehow it just doesn't matter what you do. For He calls us as responsible agents made in His image to respond to Him. And He holds us culpable for what we do. But even through that, He is sovereign. But I find myself at times struggling with the fact of how He's doing things. Recently, just the past few days, I find myself thinking about home improvement projects and just being discontent. I believe a heart of discontentment often is the fact that we don't like how God's doing things. And we want them done a different way. We want them done our way. And for me, this was expressed around home improvement projects. I was just aware of, I think it was yesterday or the day before, just all the things I need to do and all the things that I'm probably not going to be able to do. Our rug in our basement smells like mildew. Our side door is broken. We need more lattice around our deck. We need bamboo planted to screen out our swamp. Uh, the boys are all crowded into one bedroom. Our garage, a garage would be nice. The pool, it looks kind of beat up. The vacuum thing is stuck in the pool filter. I can't get it out. And I just was sitting there thinking, oh, 
all this stuff and it never ends and there's just other things and, and a different house color would probably be good and last year when I painted the side of the house I missed some spots and I'm going to go back and do that and there was just discontentment because I wanted to be able to control my circumstances and get everything done and I was just re- facing the fact that that's just not reality I'm always going to be limited and, and, and ultimately God is sovereign and it doesn't always go my way then God started to show me last night even greater depths to my discontentment. I heard about a, another church that's prospering. And that's great. And I wasn't jealous of the church. I was, Amen. But they were experiencing greater blessing than we. We are experiencing much blessing. But I found myself thinking, hey, how come we don't have that? What's that? And just this discontentment. Bigger church, more things we could do, just all this stuff. And, and just, I mean, the, the attitude. I had a bad attitude last night. And I, and I was just started to tell Peg, this is what I'm thinking, and I don't want you to, to necessarily not to affirm anything I'm saying here, <laughs> and other than I just listen and realize this, I know this is sin, but I just need to tell you so you can help me turn back to truth. Have you ever been like that? The Lord, thankfully, began to speak to me, and He uh, brought John 21 to mind when He was speaking to Peter, and He said, when you get old, you're going to be led away where you don't want to go. And Peter turned to John and said, what about this one? And Jesus said, what is that to you? You are responsible to walk with me. This is your life right here, Peter. This is what it's about. I'm your God. I'm your sovereign God. Trust me. Find your life in me. Don't be looking to make things your way and orchestrate things your way and compare to others. So God is calling me to trust Him. And we are called to face the truth of Genesis 1.1. God is the One who's made all things. He created all things. He rules over all things. And He is wise. And He's good. And if we are in Christ, He promises to use every single thing, be it mildew in the rug, or whatever it might be, for our good. What is it to you if someone else is better off and doesn't have mildew or doesn't have this or is more athletic? I'm your God. Trust me. I'm the sovereign one. I determine all these things. And He is trustworthy. And we must run to the cross and repent. And know that He has brought a solution to that man that wants to do his own thing. That man or woman who can't trust. And there's forgiveness and there's power in Christ and in the cross to walk in these ways and to enjoy Him. God created the heavens and the earth. There's more, believe it or not. matter of fact, we could probably do the whole series this summer on this one verse if we wanted to. There's just so much truth here. He made the heavens and the earth. That implies all things. Colossians 1 informs our understanding of this. It says Jesus, as part of the Godhead, made all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He made all things. He made the spiritual realm. He made the celestial heavens. He made the earth. He made everything. And it's glorious. His creation is glorious. It's, it's really amazing. 
His physical creation is just unfathomable. And it displays His glory. Uh, if you look at the size of the universe, the size of the universe is 10 to the 25th meters, which probably doesn't mean much to most of you guys. It means it's really, really big. It's so big that if you fired a bullet into outer space, it would take a billion, billion years. If you fired a laser at the speed of light, it would take a billion years to reach the end of the known universe. A billion years. That's a long time. That's a laser. It goes really fast. It's really, really big. <laughs> 10 to the 25th. Not only is it really, really big, it's also really, really small. The smallest particle is the quark, and it's 10 to the negative 18th or smaller. We'll just say it's 10 to the negative 25th meters. So the universe is just as small as it is big. In other words, outer space is just as big as inner space is small. And it's just amazing. I mean, and you can just start to look at little simple things. Look at the hydrogen atom, and, and guys spend their whole lives doing dissertations on this one atom. I was doing that for a little while. It's just amazing. This is his physical creation. His physical creation is so glorious that we'll never, I, don't, I believe, we'll never finish probing the glories of it. Apparently it's finite, right? I mean, it, it, I would say it's finite. But it's so deep and so big and so small and so varied. And not just that, it's so beautiful and so well done and so perfect that we'll never finish probing. And I believe... Scriptural view is that God is going to recreate the heavens and the earth. We are going to live in a physical earth, in a physical universe, and we're going to get to enjoy forever probing His glory and His creation. And that's just the physical part. You see, He made this physical universe to display His glory, and within the space-time continuum that He created, He determined events, particularly the Gospel event, to display His glory more significantly than the physical universe, though not separate from it. He determined to show His glory. So the physical universe would take, it could take an infinite amount of scientists, an infinite amount of time to describe and to plumb and see His glory. The Gospel and the glory of God in the Gospel will take an infinite amount of time to probe and to see the glory of God. The band could come up as we get ready to close. You see, the apex of His glory is Christ, who has pre-existed creation. Christ coming and living the perfect life, dying for sinners, rising again. That's the apex of His glory. And He invites us to behold His glory and to understand the purpose for His creation and to enjoy it, and to see it, and view it in the sun. You see, Jesus came to obey the Father, and to show forth the glory of the Father, so that all of heaven and all of creation would marvel. And it shows the full dimensions of His glory. You see, Jesus came and He lived the perfect life. And He died for sinners. And He bridged infinite glory in God and His good ways. He bridged infinite glory, God in His holiness and justice. God in His love. And He bridged infinite glory with infinite offense to infinite glory. 
Is what, that's what sin is. When we sin, we basically snub our noses at infinite glory and say, that, that stink, that smells, I want nothing to do with it. I want me. I want my way. I want, I want to be happy my way. And so, in a sense, it's an infinite offense. And the Son came to bridge that. Bridge sin. Infinite offense to God. And infinite glory. God in His love and in His wisdom and in His justice and all who He is. He bridged those things. And that displays the glory of God. That, that God Himself would die for sinners. We must behold, and if you're a believer, we will behold fully the glory of God in dying for sinners. And humbling Himself. And humbling Himself below us to bear our sins. He died He died for me in my rebellion, in my sin. And He knew all that that would mean. He knew the wrath that He would bear. He knew the agony. He also knew the love that He had and has for us, for me. That infinite love. And so He bridged these things. He paid for sin. So that we could be forgiven. And so that we could behold His glory. There's a lot of information, I think, in all these things. And and I recognize it's probably challenging to bring it together. But we must hold these things together. We must understand this theme of the glory of God in Scripture, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. And we must see how it fits in to the fact that God loves us. We live in a culture that has said the highest purpose of creation is me being loved. And I think that us experiencing His love is a very high purpose. But it is not the highest purpose. And it ultimately doesn't make sense apart from God and His glory. So my experience of the love of God is to be genuine and true and deep. And His love is infinite. His love is deep. His love is perfect. His love is better than anything you'll ever, ever know or experience. And He calls us to that. And we need to know more of His love. We need to to build our lives on the love of God. Ephesians 3 clearly teaches us that. His love is amazing. But we must not disconnect that with His glory. We can't separate the two for His love is part of His glory. And His glory is to love us so much. And His glory is to forgive sinners. And His glory is to be just in punishing sin. And His glory is to send the Son for you because He loved you and set His affections on you. And because He wanted to show His glory that His love is so great. And He wanted to, for us to enjoy His glory and in His love and to understand our purpose and find our lives in that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1 God has done it. God wants to show His glory. God invites us to Him to turn from lesser things, to turn from sin, to turn from finding our life in something else that is less worthy than Him and to delight in Him. Delight in His love. Delight in living for Him. Delight in beholding. Hungering for more. Desiring to walk out the truth. Holiness and being the people of God flows from these truths. 
We are holy because He is holy, because He is glorious, because we are His, because we want to live for Him. We want to love Him. That's what He's calling us to. That's our call. To repent and believe the Gospel. To turn from sin and self to Him and His glory. Let me close with a quote from John Piper. Do you love the thought that you exist to make God look glorious? Do you love the thought that all creation exists to display the glory of God? Do you love the truth that all of history is designed by God to one day be a completed canvas that displays in the best way possible the greatness and beauty of God? Do you love the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world to vindicate the righteousness of God and repair the injury that we had done to the reputation of the glory of God? Do you love the truth that you personally exist to make God look like what He really is? Glorious. Do you love the fact that your salvation is meant to put the glory of God's grace on display? Do you love seeing and showing the glory of God? That is why God created the universe. That is why He ordained history. This is why He sent His Son. This is why you exist. Forever to see and savor and show the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would help us to behold Your glory. To see what Your glory is really like. Lord, to avoid the the mistake, the error of shortchanging Your glory. Of saying Your glory is merely about Your love, though it is about that. Of saying Your glory is merely about Your majesty and Your holiness, though it is about that. Of saying that Your glory is merely about Your justice, though it is about that. Help us to avoid the mistake of thinking Your glory is merely about Your kindness and tenderness and compassion, though it is about those things. Help us to understand the greatness of Your glory, the goodness of You, O God. That You are bigger and better and greater than anything we can behold. You are good. You are glorious. You are worthy. And You have made all things to express this. And You invite us as Your people to come and enjoy and behold and walk out the implications of Your glory and Your goodness and Your worth. We thank You, Lord. We thank You, Lord, that we are saved from our sin to You. To love You and enjoy You forever. Give us eyes to see, O God. Protect us from false thinking, man-centeredness, Show us your glory and use us to show your glory in all that we do, O God. We pray in Jesus' name.